Well, as we come to the scriptures today, uh, let's ask God to bless us and teach us new things and remind us of old things that are all for his glory. Heavenly Father, we come to pray, asking you to bless us as we think about your word this day, thanking you for it, asking for help and strength and your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story goes that a troop of Boy Scouts was being used as guinea pigs in a test of emergency systems. A mock earthquake was staged and the Scouts impersonated wounded people who were to be picked up and cared for by the emergency units. One Scout was supposed to lie on the ground and await his rescuers, but the first aid people got behind schedule and the Scout lay there wounded so-called, for several hours. When the first aid squad finally arrived to where he was supposed to be, they found nothing but a brief note, have bled to death and gone home. In a roundabout way, that story leads us to the question, a most important one at that, what happens after you die? Do you have to bleed to death to find out? It's a question that will be asked by everyone eventually, even though in this multi-faith society the answers will be many and varied. I once saw a bumper sticker that took the point of view of reincarnation taught by Buddhism. The sticker had the words, born again, in a fairly good-sized font, and then below it in about half the size, the words, and again, and again, and again. Other views range from Islam's view of the future, where there's a weighing of our good versus our bad, to those who believe that there is just nothing, to those who believe that we become angels, or that heaven is automatically our destination regardless of our beliefs. In the midst of the myriad of options, the scriptures are not silent, and the section we've read from this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, gives us perspective from the point of view of God's word, not something which is an unproven theory, but something solid upon which we can depend. Now, the heart of what they say is this truth that we've read of this morning, that because the resurrection of Jesus is true, so also with that comes the guarantee of the resurrection of believers, who, like Jesus will receive back their own bodies, not as they were at death, no longer perishable or decaying, but altogether new, completely transformed. Let me tease this out a little for us as we consider these verses 35 to 58, which all centre around the concept of our resurrection bodies. First, these verses point out to us the nature of our new resurrection bodies. Paul has established already in this great resurrection chapter the fact of the resurrection, that Christ has been raised, and because he is now alive, so also will all those who are united to him by faith. Our hope to participate in the resurrection as believers is never because we believe that we've been good, not at all. Our hope is that we will live because he lives and because he saves forever 
those who come to him in faith. And because he overcame death and lived again, the promise is to those who are his that they shall also. This was Paul's argument in the early part of the chapter, but by the time we come to verse 35, we reach an objection that Paul can foresee to all that he has said. Someone may ask, he says, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? Here's a literal translation. Some of you might be scoffing at the idea that bodies have long-term importance, as just spelled out in the first half of the chapter. Really now, you say, if the dead are raised, what kind of bodies will they have? Aren't they going to be unbelievably smelly, not to mention awfully ugly? Paul says this is a foolish question, because... Even in nature, it's taught what happens. If seeds can get a new body when they die, don't you think that perhaps people will get new bodies too, he says? Different kinds of seeds produce different kinds of bodies. Different plants grow from each kind of seed. His point is this. What happens to the seed will happen to us. Our earthly bodies, which die and decay, will be different when they are resurrected, for they will never die. Our bodies now disappoint us, but when they are raised, they will be fully and completely different. They are weak now, but when they are raised, they will be glorious. They are natural human bodies now, but when they are raised, they will be spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, so also there are spiritual bodies. And as Paul is saying this, you can imagine the Corinthians wondering, a spiritual body? How can you have a spiritual body? It sounds like a contradiction. See, in their way of thinking, the spirit and the body are so completely different that these can't have anything to do with each other, let alone the fact that they viewed the spirit as being far superior to the body. But here is Paul saying, just when you thought you were rid of that body, that shell in which your spirit is housed, and just when you thought that after you die, you might end up finally discarding that shell, God's plan is such that he's not finished with your body, and neither are you. Mind you, this wasn't great news for all those at Corinth who had been banking on their spiritual experiences, which supposedly rendered what happened to their bodies as irrelevant. Suddenly they are once again having to deal with the reality of having a body. And with that were not enough, it's a spiritual body the, the Apostle is speaking of, something bordering on what seemed to be crazy to these poor Corinthians, and to others, until you begin to examine what the Apostle means, which is this. We're going to be like Jesus. Verse 45 can be summarized like this. Every human being has an earthly body just like Adam's, but our heavenly bodies will be just like Christ's. Just as we are now like Adam, the man of the earth, so we will someday be like Christ, the man from heaven. It's clear that Paul was thinking of Jesus' resurrected body, which was a real body. The Gospels tell us that in his post-resurrection appearances, Jesus looked real. He could be touched. He ate food. He even had scars from his crucifixion. 
there was some continuity from the old body to the new. Now, to what extent that carries over isn't clear, but the point is that these new transformed bodies will be like his glorious body, for he is the one who trailblazed the way for us, dying and then rising, and it makes sense that when we rise from death, we will be like him in every sense. Consider that fact in the light of this. When you sign on to follow Jesus, you do so. Not only so for the sake of the truth of the gospel, but also to become like your Saviour. That's the goal of the Christian life, in terms of our characters being changed. A death does not put an end to that process. For at death we are instantly sanctified and perfected, although without a body, for a time, until the day when God completely renews all things, including our old bodies, which will also become like Christ. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and this is your future if you're a believer. He said, God is going to take the feeblest and the filthiest of us and turn us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating with all the energy and the joy and wisdom and love that we could possibly imagine. He's going to turn us into bright, stainless mirrors that reflect back his character perfectly. It's the nature of our new resurrection bodies. Then Paul speaks secondly of the permanence of our new resurrection bodies. Let's face it, who wants to live forever with the body they have now? You may or may not like the way you look, but that's immaterial. Wouldn't you rather a new and improved model that can go the extra distance of eternity? Verse 51 says, let me tell you a wonderful secret God has revealed to us. Not all of us will die, but we will all be transformed. Or as some versions put it, and I've heard of this verse being written on the walls of church cry rooms filled with babies, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Sleep, of course, is an expression, a euphemism, a good word for death. Our bodies will sleep in that sense, not our souls. But they will only sleep until what verse 52 describes becomes effective, when in that last moment, in the blinking of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet, believers who have died will be raised with transformed bodies, and those of us who are still alive at this moment will be transformed in that instant and given bodies that will never die. And when that, this happens, when our perishable earthly bodies have been transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die, then at last the scriptures will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. Key word of, in all of this is the word victory. Just as it was several hundred years ago before the birth of Jesus when a crucial battle occurred between the Greeks and the Persians upon the plains of Marathon, 
The battle raged for hours. In many respects, it was a fight to the finish. Finally, the numerically inferior Greeks, the underdogs, managed a tremendous tactical win. But there was this problem. Soon, the Senate, many miles away in Athens, was to vote and would most certainly ratify a treaty of peace. In desperation, they sent a runner in full battle gear to go the 27 miles, 40-something kilometres, to tell of the news. By the time he got to Athens, he had run what we call a marathon. It is said he was totally spent, that he literally ran himself to death. In his exhaustion, he was able to utter one word, victory. On Easter Sunday and every Sunday since then, the news of the fact that Christ is risen, that he won the victory over death and sin and hell should still resonate in our ears. The message that the resurrection of Jesus proclaims to us is wrapped up in that word. Victory. Victory over death, that last great enemy that holds its awful grip over the lives of so many. But not to believers. Hebrews 2 tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Is that where you are this morning? Or are you still held in the grip of the unknown? Thirdly, Paul tells of the hope inspired by our new resurrection bodies. There's not much in the world that can or will bring hope in the face of death. People live and die 50, 60, 70 years, a little less, a little more. Then they plan on being out of here. If anything is missing in this world, it's that cutting edge that hope brings, the future hope that gives you the edge that you need to make it through the chaos of life. And here Paul gives us three key thoughts on how this hope is and ought to be revealed in us. First, this hope creates thankfulness. Verse 57, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we know that we're not facing an eternity without him. And we also know that he's in full control. And though we haven't realised yet the full implication of what this salvation is that God has given us, saving us past, present and future, we know enough to know that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And that's enough to inspire us to be thankful. Then this hope brings a level of resolve. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There are lots of reasons why we could adopt an attitude of defeat in relation to the gospel and its progress today. But that's not the attitude Paul encourages. 
Instead, it's the opposite. Go on serving the Lord, because thirdly, this hope creates confidence. Verse 58, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. If death is the end, then as Shakespeare put it, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and little else. Death renders all our accomplishments meaningless. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, and he has, and if he is coming again, and his coming marks the end of all things, and he is, and it will, then whatever we do for him counts for eternity. That act of kindness, that doing a good job in the school or the office or the home, that sharing the gospel so others too might have eternal life, because we do it for him, none of it is wasted. You may not see how it all fits or works, but because you know that there is a future that is certain, then we can also be sure that the present has purpose. Even a cup of cold water, given in the name of the Lord Jesus, will not lose its reward. So we can take heart and with confidence continue to serve knowing that Jesus won the victory for us. Now think this through, this hope that believers have. See how what is to come sheds such a brilliant light upon the now. The resurrection of our bodies is yet to be, but because Christ was raised from the dead in the past, and because we are told we can be sure about what is ahead, then we can live in the present sandwiched between two realities. If anything, this hope we have should make us stand out like sore thumbs in a world where the uncertainty about death and beyond cripples people's lives, inspiring nothing but fear. Well, how does all this relate to you and to me? Though we are both in the same boat, and you need this gospel comfort as much as I do, it applies to me in another aspect that it may not apply to you. <coughs> One of the duties that falls to me as a minister of the gospel is to conduct funeral services. And I have done over the years, I think, more than my fair share of those. Each time I conduct a funeral service and its related burial or cremation, I've not failed at any of those occasions to be struck by the cold, hard reality of death, a truth that is amplified even more by the solemn words that are usually said at the moment of burial or cremation as the funeral director either sprinkles a sod of earth or presses one final button. You know the words. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, and dust to dust. There is no moment like that moment. Eyes are cast down. No smiles. No joy. This is where the reality of death strikes hard. But thankfully also, where the reality and the hope 
of the resurrection strikes home. For in some cases, and where I know the loved one has trusted in the Lord Jesus, these words are added. In the sure and the certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died, was buried, and rose again for us. There is hope. Paul says in Romans 8.11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. And this is the hope and the comfort of the Gospel and something that makes us different from the rest of the world who do not have this Gospel hope. And there have been thousands upon thousands who have shared this hope. A couple of weeks ago I told you the story of D.L. Moody and his death. But this morning, let's close by thinking on a man by the name of Norman Anderson, who bore the titles of Sir and Professor. He died in 1994, aged 86. Anderson was a distinguished lawyer in the UK who became a missionary and an author. His book, The Evidence for the Resurrection, is worth a read. He wrote the book because he made it his specialist study area. It was his special area of interest because he and his wife saw their three adult children all die. One of them was 21 years old when he died of cancer. A few days later, Professor Anderson gave the thought for the day on the BBC. After explaining why he was convinced that God raised Jesus from the dead, he said, He said, On this I am prepared to stake my life. In this faith, my son died. After saying, I am drawing near my Lord, and I am convinced that he was not mistaken. After looking at this hope held out to us in this resurrection chapter now for these three weeks, I'm happy to say that the Apostle Paul also wanted us to be convinced that we are not mistaken either in our belief that because of Jesus' resurrection, if you belong to him, you can be sure of yours too. Is your hope in him today? Can you say, as we will sing in a moment, in Christ alone my hope is found? Praise God if you can. But if not, seek him now before the cold, hard reality of death comes and your turn finds you unprepared for what's ahead. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, today as we pray, we thank you so much for the hope that you have given us in your word. Without that hope, we would also live lives that have no meaning or purpose. But because there is a resurrection, and because you have promised us new bodies that will live forever in your eternity, we thank you for the one through whom we gain the victory, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us and was raised from the dead for us.
that we, though we have dying mortal bodies, might look forward to the day when all is renewed, when Christ is glorified, and we will see his glory and be like him. So encourage us, strengthen us, as again we put our hope in the one that you sent to save us, your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.